I think I want to make a movie with nothing but long shots. Nothing but the characters in extreme distance, like stick figures, the entire like movie. The- like that shot in Holy Grail where they're running through the field from a distance, but it's just that for two hours. Yes, uh, yeah, and with the drums and everything. Yeah, that's the whole movie. <laughs> I want to. I want like to make a movie where uh, there's no shots uh, above the waist. It's just crotches and feet, and it's not a sex thing. Don't make it about that. It's just a choice. <laughs> Oh, wasn't there a trailer for uh, a Kristen Wiig movie that was doing that? The trailer was shot below the waist. That sounds like a thing that somebody's probably already gotten to. Yeah. I'm going to see if I can find that because I feel like I saw a trailer for that the last time I was in a theater like four years ago, whenever it was. This is going to be some banter that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to anybody that didn't uh, you know, do the homework this week and yeah. has not watched The Passion of Joan That's true. This is totally true, but really there is no other single shot that you could use to make a whole movie. I mean, you can't just say, we're going to do the whole movie with nothing but you know, medium long shots. I mean, I guess TV. Shot reverse shot, you know. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could. I mean, the medium long shot, the knees up shot, that's a lot of television got shot that way in the mm-hmm. 50s, didn't they, it? Yeah. Totally. I mean, they, they used some close I think ups. even a lot of, like, the you know the modern handheld TV shows, The Office or Rest of Development, those are a lot of that kind of knee up type shot. Yeah, the single cams are. Yeah, yeah, the single cam shows are moving fast and loose, so they don't have a lot of time for different setups sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. So I, I, I guess that's a thing. I, I, I take it back. <laughs> but uh hello everybody and welcome again to the good trash honor cast we gather around a table we discuss films you'll never discuss the film says course this week's film as we are in the world of anti-trash and looking at movies you will study in a film says course is carl theodore dreyer's the passion of joan of arc i'm so excited uh to be talking about that as we go super super french for our french anti-trash marathon i'm still dustin I'm still Arthur. And I am still Dalton. And does it count uh, if it's a, a Danish movie, technically? Does this still count as a French movie? Where it's the French rules? financed. It it's doesn't French matter financed. where the director's from. It matters where you're working in uh, when you make the they film. They hired right? him. Yeah, they hired him to come in to make this film. And then they fired him after it flopped. The fools. So yeah, like when Louis Vuitton makes uh, that obscure object of desire in France... Even though he's a Spanish actor, it's not a Spanish movie. Well, I wasn't sure how, I, yeah. about the. I just knew that learning. Uh, I was like, oh yeah, that's right. Dreyer's a, a Dane, and then also yeah. like they uh, they had to translate the inner titles from Danish right. to French. Uh, yeah. So I was I was curious about the production history on this, but good, hey, with, good to know. Yeah, yeah. Or no. well, Boonwell in Mexico, even though he's sure. a Spaniard, is not a Spanish film. It's still a Mexican film when he makes Exterminating Angel or whatever. So sure, yeah. sure. Uh, I'll tell you what, though, I can see why the uh, the studio was mad. They uh, they built, uh, you know, spent a whole, whole, whole bunch of money uh, on concrete to build a castle for him. And then he shot the whole damn movie in close. I mean, you see it's it. Scary. It's you do see there, yeah. the architecture some, but yeah. Sure. I mean, it's in that he doesn't show it off like, uh, you know, not. Uh, oh, what's his name? Ian Fle- uh, not Fleming, not Ian Fleming, uh, Victor Fleming. You know, when they're reading the original uh, version of The Wizard of Oz. And the silver slippers, he goes, oh, we're not doing silver. Make them red because it's Technicolor. Yeah. <laughs> we're spending this kind of money. We're going to show it off. Yeah, that, that is definitely not Dreyer's viewpoint there. No, but so. it's pretty funny. Baller move. Yeah, it's, it's, oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's so definitely cool. a gangster move, yeah. Well, hey, if you're tuning into the Good Trash Honorcast for the very first time, we want to give you a little bit of a preamble and a warning that we give every single week. And that is that this is an analysis show, not a review show. And that means we will spoil the film, even when it's a film from 
a long time ago, as is the case uh, with The Passion of Joan of Arc. Uh, but we won't spoil the film in the first part of the show. What we'll do is we'll do a synopsis. I, I mean, spoilers on The Passion of Joan of Arc. We all know what happens to Joan of Arc, maybe, if we know history. But if you don't know history... I'll talk about it in a second. <laughs> so, no, I, 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 won't, I won't bring something up in a minute because it's pretty funny. Okay, I mean... Uh, anyway, and it's in the title. It Okay, can I... Brief pause. We need a better English word. Okay? So, passion of Joan of Arc. Um, we have that word passion from which we mean pathos, and we also mean passion. This is not a sexy movie. Yeah. This is a suffering movie. Pathos as in suffering. And we need a, we need, we need a pathen. We need another word in English. For- yeah, just because... Man, it really does go to show you how limited English can be uh, when compared to a handful of other uh, languages from the same continent. Uh, Man, just a little bit more nuance with the words sometimes. But in the title, we kind of know what's going to happen. But we're not going to talk about that, I don't know, depending on what the synopsis does. And then we're going to give thumbs up, thumbs on reviews, which I guess will try to be kind of light, although we'll already know what's going to happen. And then we'll play a little thought exercise called Expanding the Syllabus, in which we might spoil other movies and this movie. And then finally we get down to business and we just don't care. We'll leave all the wreckage of spoilers out before you as we uh, give analysis of the movie with kicky little music to let you know that it's about to start. So... Without any further ado, Arthur, do the thing which probably involves spoilers. Go. Released just a few years after her canonization, Carl T.H. Dreyer's documents the trial of Jeanne d'Arc as she faces her accusers who demand she admit to crimes of heresy and cross-dressing while attempting to snare her in religious questioning traps. Very good. Uh- I do love uh, doing a middle initial. That's uh, the first two letters of your middle name. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, I like that. It's pretty cool stuff. Uh, Arthur, what was the funny thing you wanted to say that was a spoiler? I have to know. Oh, it wasn't a spoiler. It was more about review because uh, Dustin mentioned people know who Joan of Arc is, right? Sure. Uh, so I was on Letterboxd just reading through reviews. You know, it's like five star, five star, four star, four and a half, five, five, yeah. three yeah. and a half, three and a half. Then I get a couple of like one and a half. They're like, yeah, I get it. It's a good movie, but I don't get it. I don't know who Joan of Arc is. Like, that's not explained in the movie. And I'm like, well, you can't fault the film for that because it was came out eight years after her canonization for a French audience, and they knew who she was. So yeah, it's, it's, wow. it's a funny thing in criticism where you like, yeah, you don't know the context, but that's really not the film's fault. That's a failure of your educational system. It, yeah. Well, and and that does you know bring us, uh, and maybe we'll get here later on in the episode. But you know, obviously that brings in questions like uh, about gatekeeping and elitism and canon bullshit, right? Like. At what point is it classist to say, well, it's your fault for not knowing what the movie's about? And at what point is it bad film? I don't know. I think we'll get into that, but I agree. I don't know how uh, how you grow up in the West and not learn about her. That's just, I don't know, man. Uh, I think although, I again, knew... that might, you know, that's some regional, uh, you know, uh, bias there too, or cultural bias there as well, I suppose. Yeah, and I don't know where I first heard about her, but, I, you know, I, I didn't know the history. I knew, like, the visions of God and the army stuff and that she had her fate. Uh, but I, you know, I, I didn't know the ins and outs and everything, but I, I had a pretty good working knowledge. And I don't know if that was through pop culture. Cause I'm pretty sure the Simpsons did a spoof on this with Lisa as Joan of Arc. You know, I feel like that's a thing that's probably happened. Sure. Uh, and so I don't know if it was in like a history class or at a church, you know, I don't know where I've heard I mean, of Joan of Arc. In the Arc, early nineties, we had Joan of Arcadia, the television show, right? Yeah. 
Well, is... and that was almost certainly how, uh, yeah, Joan of Arc probably entered my preview. I remember my parents watching that show. I, look, I, you're right, though, Dustin. Like, it's it's such a uh, cultural touchstone that a network TV show is just like, we can we can do something like that, yeah. right? Uh, sidebar, uh, I, I am uh, pitching my show, Joan of Arkansas, uh, if anybody's interested. <laughs> uh, I really think I might be on to something with this one. You could call it Jonah Ark, J-O-N-A-H, Jonah uh-huh. Ark. Uh-huh. I think that could work. Yeah. <laughs> Jonah, Arkansas. What is okay. it? Okay. Yeah. Now, hey, Arthur. Yeah, uh-huh. I think I just brought you on as an executive producer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. It, well, without any further ado, let's react to this movie. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Dalton, what do you think of Joan of Arc? Uh, the Passion of Joan of Arc. First time. Yeah, first time viewing for me. Uh well, number one, uh, I will have some more ado because I do love how happy and uh, how happy Arthur and I are making Dustin this afternoon. Uh, but that said, I, yeah, I was really excited to watch this one. Um, as with How Su, um, which we did, you know, uh, this past October, first October marathon, this was a film that, you know, its reputation like heavily preceded itself. Um, and obviously this whole marathon has been films with pretty lofty reputations, but I, I don't know, more than the rules of the game, more than 400 blows. I felt like I needed to do some research on this one. Uh, and maybe it was just because of, you know, be, it being a film from the twenties, uh, it, it's hard to, to, or not hard to find. I, I should say rather, there's a lot of options in what you're looking at. And we'll probably, when we get more into analysis, we'll probably talk about some of the formal stuff going on here, uh, as far as the screening and production of silent films, the variable frame rates uh, at this period. And I guess what we could call manual cinema, right? Where the camera is being cranked by hand and how that uh, varied uh, frame rates and all kinds of stuff. We'll get into it uh, later on uh, because it's not really important to my reaction. Uh, I just bring it up to say that, yeah, I I did some thinking. I, you know, I I watched an interview with uh, the dudes from, uh, Portishead and Goldfrapp, who did uh, a, a a version of the score in 2010. Uh, I, I watched um, you know a, a handful of the other supplementals uh, that are on the the Criterion version of this, uh, just to kind of like, all right, well, tell me what I need to know about this movie because I know there's a lot to to know, um, and and that was fun to to learn about, especially again those those frame rate issues with this movie, um, as is the case with many um, uh, films from its era. Uh, I do want to go ahead and start off on that that score, um, the the Gregory and uh, Utley score. Utley, I don't know how to say his name, uh, is is how it's often billed. Uh, but again, it's uh, th- those two cats from those bands that I mentioned already, and they do this just really haunting uh, score that I, I definitely blends in some more classical elements that you would expect from you know the score to this movie. But again, Dreyer didn't have like an official score for this film. So as with a lot of silent films, like in its reproductions, it is just kind of that's part of the magic of it is bringing people in to do the music. Uh, and man, I'm glad this was the version I watched because it just provides this absolute oppressive atmosphere that, again, I, I think is heightened by the, you know, the old school Academy ratio that we've got here. You know, already the frame is very tight. And as we've alluded to already, uh, Dreyer has just got everybody in close up for the whole movie. And again, using natural lighting, not using any makeup, doing so many things that are ahead of their time. 
to capture people's faces as they look. Uh, I really was just stunned by this movie from jump again, the, the long takes that we, we get in here, the, the tight, uh, on the face work like it, it is just again with rules of the game last week you know a film that technologically speaking or i i mean technologically uh technique speaking feels so far ahead of its time and i i think that we could definitely say the same and probably will say the same for a lot of this episode about the passion of joan of arc because it is doing I don't know, just things that you don't expect when you sit down to watch a, a film from this era. Uh, I, I really did totally go for this. Uh, I, 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 I'm wondering, though, circling back to this score from 2010, uh, I, I'm wondering if uh, Hans Zimmer or Junkie XL listened to it at all, because it definitely feels there's a couple of moments that uh, made me go, <laughs> ooh, this sounds like the Wonder Woman score. <laughs> uh, and I don't know if that was a subject matter, you know, uh, cross-pollination going on in my synapses or uh, I, I am on to something here uh, musically speaking but man I love this score and I, I just I feel it really did suck me into this movie that uh, you know it's it's a pretty quick watch but I was worried uh, you know I don't watch a lot of silent films so I, I was worried about my uh, ability my uh, tendency to get distracted uh, but no I, I was definitely into it. Uh, it it does very much from the start of the film to its conclusion feel very much like Carl Dreyer yelling, Hey, imagine calling yourself a Christian and then doing an execution. Uh, it, it really is an, an, an angry film in some ways, but it is a, a film that feels very sad and, and feels for Joan of Arc in a really deep way. Um, I, I'm curious to, to hear what you guys have to say about it, having seen the film uh, a couple of times. I know, Dustin, you've seen it uh, a few, and Arthur, I know you've seen it before. I'm not sure just how many times you've seen it, but I'm curious to, to get to talk to you guys because, again, I'm, I'm coming out of this fresh, and I actually did just watch this today, uh, so I'm still kind of wrestling with it. Um, but every time I think, well, that was an interesting movie, uh, and, and try to stop thinking about it, it does find some way to just dominate the front of my brain including learning things like oh you know uh we would have lost this movie forever if we hadn't found it in a mental hospital uh because an italian doctor had a print that he was showing to patients uh, and that print yeah uh i don't know which story is the more true one uh one story is it was in the netherlands maybe norway i don't it was either a scandinavian country or the netherlands uh, is is where the print was found is one story and the other story I heard was that it was in the estate of an Italian priest, uh, not a doctor, an Italian priest who's uh, showing it at mental hospitals when he was ministering at them. Uh, so in either capacity, uh, boy howdy, what a weird story for the Passion of Joan of Arc uh, that that is uh, how it was uh, held within the historical record and protected from being destroyed, which was the case for a lot of other prints of this movie. Uh, and, and I'm very glad for that because it definitely feels like uh, a film that goes to show uh, whether you're talking about the 100 years or so since its release or the 600 years since Joan of Arc's execution. Boy, howdy, does it feel like not a damn thing's changed, huh? Uh, this is unfortunately a movie about a bunch of men uh, telling a woman uh, what she's wrong about and how she's wrong and trying to manipulate and uh, mess with her to their own political ends. Uh, it's a bummer. Uh, it's a sad, sad movie. <laughs> and I like it a lot, unfortunately. Um, th there is so much going on here uh, that is subtle, I, I guess. And maybe that's just my what I'm bringing to it uh, as somebody who doesn't watch a ton of silent cinema. Th there is just this 
this time you get to spend with these tight shots. And again, it's not all long shots. There's a lot of montage work in this film, a lot of quick cuts and quick edits uh, between shot and reverse shot stuff as Arthur you know, mentioned uh, th- those are th- that's you know something you can use to do a whole movie or a whole production of any kind. But we get a lot of that in here, even though it's not particularly dialogue heavy. I feel like the intertitles uh, aren't. There's not that many. You know, we're we're not. There's the movie is not afraid to let dialogue go unrecorded by the film, uh, which I think is good. I don't think we need it all. Of course, some of that's just people answering in the affirmative to questions, but. I do like that we get a lot of the judges and cardinals kind of jibber jabbering at each other, but we never hear what they're arguing about or, uh, you know, what, what the, the actual content of what they're saying is. And I, I think that's important um, because we do spend so much of this locked into Joan's POV and Joan was uh, an illiterate farm person. Uh, she was not particularly educated at all. Uh, so to constantly feel like you were lost in this Byzantine uh structure is a, is a great strength of the film i think because it does land you firmly within jones pov um to to be there with her to go through this this uh, suffering as dustin has already said uh i think that's what i've got to say at this point uh just so to stop myself from speaking in circles i'm going to go ahead and give it up but yeah i, I really like this um I, I am fascinated by this very sad very poignant uh and very uh uh, timely, not timeless. Yeah, let's go with timeless. Timeless film. That's the one I want. Okay, <laughs> thank you very much, Dalton. <laughs> Are you sure you're done? <laughs> yeah. Well, look, when you decide you're done, you gotta really uh, have a thesis. <laughs> I had a bunch of notes for this movie too, and I was just like, yeah. I mean, these are all just observations. I, I'm wrestling I with this one because it's so. <laughs> Man, I should have watched. Look, as with uh, all movies, I uh, I probably should have watched it more times for the show. But damn, I uh, this one got me uh, yeah. in a way that the other two films we watched so far didn't. It, it's a great movie, and I'm I'm sure we're gonna have a great discussion moving on more about. It. Let's do some more review though, just in terms of reaction. Now, Arthur, I know you've seen the movie before. How many times? And what is your reaction upon this encounter? Yeah, I'd seen it one time prior, probably about two years ago or so, maybe a little longer. I can't remember exactly. I watched this uh, one, man, maybe in the morning or one afternoon. I can't remember. Um, I couldn't sleep, I think, and I watched it. But, uh, yeah, I, I watched the Voices of Light cut, which I think is kind of the, the more ultimate definitive version you'll find. That's kind of the primary on Criterion. Uh, there are two other uh, versions with different scores, different frame rates. Are, uh, and so I think that, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a powerful movie. You know, um, it's, it's, it's tragic and it's... Uh, technically ahead of its time. Uh, just a fantastic marvel of a film uh, that captivates you so... You know, uh, you know it, it, the way that it's able to hold your attention for 80 minutes-ish uh, with just those close-ups, right? I mean, there's a couple of things here and there, but primarily, I mean, 90% of the film was just close-ups. Uh, and, and I think it's incredible how it managed to do that. A lot of it, obviously, is, you know, Falconetti is heralded as you know the the performer and she's great right she is great at uh inducing empathy and uh portraying the the weight on her shoulders and the pain and the torment that she is uh, mentally and emotionally going through and these dealings with the judges but also everybody else on that set right i mean the the people she's playing off of the 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 judges the the priests the monks the friars whatever uh, the the clergy that comes to be with her, um, 
you know, they they all put in the same performances, right? And, and uh, if if they don't work, the film doesn't work. And so, you know, Falconetti's great, uh, and uh, is a lot. Of, you know, there's a heart of the movie. Uh, but I think you you do need to recognize everybody else. Uh, it looks gorgeous, right? This restoration is just phenomenal. Um, I remember the first time I watched it, I was like, man, this could have came out yesterday. It's that clear, it's that clean, and it feels that modern. And then I read something, I can't remember if it was a review or critic or what, but they talked about it feels timeless. And I think that's it. More than modern, it just feels timeless, uh, which I think is a, a great hallmark. Um yeah, I, I love it. You know, I just I think this time, having been through it once, it was a little easier to kind of sit with it and be a little more engaged with it. And I was very intentional to put my phone away from me so I wasn't distracted uh, while watching it, and I was very captivated for for it, the duration of the film. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I there's nothing I could say that hasn't already been said thousands of times by critics smarter than I. Um, you, you know, Ebert says you don't understand. Uh, the history of silent film until you see Falconetti. And, you know, it, it's a hallmark of silent film. It's probably one of the more important silent films. Um, and it's all done without a language barrier, right? I mean, the inner titles are subtitled, so you're reading it anyway, uh, which is, you know, one of the nice things about it. Um, I, I like the idea to uh, withhold so much of the dialogue. Uh, you know, if you can read the lips... You can probably pick up and speak French. You can pick up on some of what's being said, but that, I that that the decision to uh, withhold that information of what's being said, because there's a lot of dialogue in this movie, uh, but we only get a f- small fraction of it in the inner titles, uh, and so that's a really interesting thing to kind of wrestle with: what is being said, how they're reacting, how they're taunting, how she's reacting. Uh, there's a lot there that, as a viewer, you can bring to the table and fill in the blanks, and I think that's just a fascinating dynamic for a film, um, and and makes great use of the the mode of of the silent film. Um, you know, it's easy to get lazy with a script, and you can have dialogue, uh, and when you're doing something like this, uh, it's a lot more challenging, and and makes you wrestle with it as a viewer. Uh, I I think it's great. Uh, I I'm you know, I was very, I, I wondered if it was French when I initially was programming this marathon, uh, because obviously the subject's French, right? But I, I, I knew Dreyer wasn't. Uh, and then when I found out it was financed by France, I'm like, yeah, we've got to do The Passion of Joan of Arc. I think that's one, if we're talking about French films and films financed by French or French history, I, I think that's at the top of the list. And uh, everything about it is French. The the inner titles, the 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 characters, the the financing. So you know what, we'll we'll just call it. And uh, I'm I'm happy to be able to talk about this one because I think it's just a, a fantastic film. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Arthur Gordon. Um, this is probably the fifth, maybe I, it's less than six times, more than three times I've seen this movie. I'm not quite sure where that all falls in. And I've never seen uh, a version of the movie with a bad score. And I've seen, I think, I don't think I've ever seen the same score twice uh, with the movie ever. And I had, there are some bad prints of it out there because I don't, I do know I've seen ugly versions of it and I'm really, really happy with the criterion version uh, that I did get a chance to see. Although uh, the 24 frame rate, you know, sort of cleanup they do, I could see uh, the swish, you know, the blur, 
where they were catching up some places where there clearly would have been something more jerky there in a 20 frame rate, the hand crank version of it. And so every once in a while I'd notice that, but for the most part, it didn't bother me at all. And it's a movie you can get away with that in because it's all face acting. Uh, so it totally works. Uh, but that being said, love this, love Dryer, Vampire, Vampire, uh, is a great movie as well that I, I think I've seen as a double bill with this film, uh, one time, uh, for a class, uh, that I've taken. And I, and I think I've had it screened a couple times, uh, in classes and yeah, I've probably seen it four times now. Now that I think about it, maybe five, I don't know. It doesn't even matter. The point is it's a good movie and I've always enjoyed it upon every watch of it. Uh, I love the use of the close up. Uh, I, I like, uh, just the way in which it is all about Falconetti's face and her performance is incredible and powerful thematically. It's interesting. Uh, again, every score I've ever heard on it has been good. I'm sure there are some bad ones out there somewhere in the world, but I've yet to find one of them. And, uh, and I don't have like a long taxonomy of them. I think I've heard the, whatever you, you called it, the fading of light score. Um, there's a word for it, but that's not what it is. Voices of light. Voices of light. That's it. Uh, I've, I, I think I've heard that one. And I know I just watched the Portishead one when I watched for this time. And I think there's another classical one by an orchestra, uh, that I saw, uh, on probably the other versions of it I've seen before. And so, uh, there's a handful of times. Uh, but I don't have, like I said, like a strong taxonomy and comparison between them. But like I said, I've never been bothered by any of them uh, in the past. Falcon A's great. Dryer's direction's great. Subject matter's great. It's uh, it's one of those movies that sticks with you. It's powerful. Uh, it's moving. It is deeply sad, but uh, sad in the way that's supposed to make you angry so you do something with your life and with the world uh, when you leave that place. And that's kind of a good thing. And so it's the kind of cinema I dig. And as a result, I'm a big fan of it. So there you go, dear listener. Our biases are generally pro. We like this movie and uh, we're excited to talk about. So let's move on into our little thought experiment. And our thought experiment is that we're going to create a syllabus in which you are teaching this film for some module of some class, perhaps film studies, perhaps something else. And so the question is, what class is it you're teaching? What are you trying to convey? And then what additional films and or readings would you be using in order to teach this film? I go to you first. Arthur, what say you, buddy? Yeah, so I want to do a bit on Called by God. Uh, oh, I, nice. I think that's just a really you know interesting way to approach this, and obviously that's the uh, the big thing with Joan of Arc, right? So the Blues she, Brothers, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, she you know felt personally called by God, and that she had this uh, call, and she had the visions, and, and it's a fascinating idea, and that's kind of the, you know, this is the the courtroom version of that. This is like the exorcism of Emily Rose, uh, but for Joan of Arc. Um, and so I, I think that idea of people uh, trying to fulfill a, a, what they think is a call of God or, or a heaven uh, decree. Uh, and so I think I would start a little bit of an oddball, but I think it definitely works by the time it all comes around. Uh, and that's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Uh, you know, I think that... Uh, last portion is really interesting uh, when they're in there looking for the the grail. Um, and I think that, that's a kind of a fun dynamic to kind of talk about and, and unpack some different stuff, probably not so much uh, the theology part of that, but I, I think it just would be a fun starting point for this. Uh, from there, I want to talk about Kingdom of Heaven, uh, Ridley Scott's film uh, about the Crusades. 
uh, and really kind of delve into the politics of that, what that looked like. You know, the politics portion of Joan of Arc is uh, really key. You know, the, the idea of the church and the state working together uh, in unholy ways and, and what that looks like also in Kingdom of Heaven and these two groups who are, you know, both fighting for God uh, and the turmoil there and the history there, I think, uh, would be a, a unique perspective. It's not a movie I love, but I think the subject matter would pair well uh, with Joan of Arc. Uh, from here, I want to talk about the Passion of the Christ, uh, because I think there's a lot to unpack here thematically uh, behind the camera. I, I think, you know, production-wise with MPAA, a lot of that kind of information, you know, information and like really getting into the nitty-gritty of this movie from a production standpoint, um, not so much, you know, thematic, uh, I don't think, but I, I, I'm just really fascinated by you know, what a lot of people call, you know, the goriest horror movie ever made is The Passion of the Christ, right? Um, and I think that's a really interesting thing. And, and the ties, obviously, you know, The Passion of Joan of Arc is, is I think, a play on The Passion of, you know, of the Christ. And so uh, those two trials line up very similarly, the, the way that Dreyer shoots it and uh, what Joan goes through in that film. Uh, is very, 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 very reminiscent of of the kind of Christ story there. Uh, so I think on a subject matter uh, level, it, it'd be really interesting to look at. Hey, Arthur, uh, have you um, have you seen uh, Scorsese's Last Temptation of Christ? No, I haven't gotten to it. And okay, I, you know, I would have put it on here probably, but that's one I just haven't gotten to. Well, I was just thinking in terms of your syllabus, I think The Passion of the Christ is great uh, for what you're doing, especially in terms of its sort of horror movie analogs uh with what you're doing with it but one of the thematic things in uh scorsese's and also the original novel is uh willem defoe's jesus is not entirely sure exactly what his calling is he feels a specific Mm. calling but he doesn't know yeah he doesn't know exactly what it's going to be and where it's going to go and so in that sort of kenosis you know humanity of uh, there, there's something interesting there too. So, it, it, for to to supplement, I guess yours, since you hadn't seen the film, I would suggest at least get some clips there. Yeah, where he no. talks to uh, the flaming god in the desert uh, a couple times, like, "What do you want me to do?" Yeah, um, that might be something along the same kind of lines. This sort of calling, I'm on a mission from God. But interestingly enough, the Jesus of this movie, he didn't even know. Yeah, uh, what he's supposed to do, which is kind of a rad idea. Yeah, it is. It's it's very fascinating. Um, and so. Uh, yeah, that's one I need to get to. And I just, you know, a lot of movies, but, uh, I'm not sure it's good. I mean, you know, Willem Dafoe is Jesus. So that's your mileage is going to vary just to start off. And then Harvey Keitel is Judas from Brooklyn. Yeah. You know, Jesus, we gave everything for you. Uh, It's just really. Mamma mia. Yeah. yeah, There are moments where you're like, I'm not so sure about the casting here. Yeah. I tell you what, I've had it with this Fakakta Messiah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, the next two I want to pick are a little more human based, and that is uh, one is the two popes, which came out a couple of years ago, nice. uh, with Anthony Hopkins and uh, oh gosh, what's his name from all the things Brazil and Game of Thrones, and why can't I think of his name? I, and you know what, I can't help you out because uh, I thought I was going to be able to, and now I can't. Jonathan think of his Price, name. there it is. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, anyway, yeah, him and Anthony Hopkins just you know they're kind of dialoguing uh, in this transition p- period of the two popes. Um, it's an interesting movie. I, it really had me wanting a spinoff where uh, those two men just go around Italy eating food. It's like a reality travel show uh, with Hopkins and Price as they just go around eating pizza because there's a really adorable scene where Anthony Hopkins Pope eats a pizza in town. Um, and I was just like, man, that'd be a fun travel show. Uh, I digress. 
the last one I want to do, and, and you know, we can talk about ex, uh, the, the transcendental stuff, and that's first reformed. And I don't really want to approach it from the transcendentalist stuff. I think that's part of it, but uh, just the, that kind of the, the way he brings, takes on a personal mission, I think is really fascinating. And the way he feels compelled to fulfill that mission and the kind of mentality and the, the thought that he's he's got going on in his head, I think it's a really uh, interesting uh, dynamic with what's going on in Joan of Arc. Uh, and so I think that that's the the road I would travel with this class, is just kind of looking at those thematic ties of, of being called by God in some manner and what that plays out like, uh, you know, thematically, narratively, from a production standpoint, what some of these films uh, look like. So that, that's where I would go with the class. Oh, very, very cool. I like that a lot, Arthur. Um, so, hey, Dalton, what class are you going to be teaching, and how are you going to use Joan of Arc? Well, I, I don't know quite how much this is going to be the same class or a different class than Arthur's, because I, I think we definitely were inspired to take similar approaches. Um, this will not be a, a film studies class for sure, though. Uh, it, it's going to be a study of, uh, of media and martyrdom. Uh, and I, I think we're going to look at different martyrs, uh, both uh, you know literally religious martyrs and, and martyrdom more as a kind of nebulous political idea, um, and look at how the media covers these things, how we uh, present hagiographies of these things, how we present demonizations of these things, depending on what is, uh, I'm not going to say politically expedient, that would be inaccurate. Um, it, it just based on who is telling what story, I guess. Um, so I think we're going to be covering a lot of ground in this class. So we probably won't have time to watch a probably the entirety of anything. It will be more a discussion. But I think we have to start with some documentaries. Uh, We now live uh, at a point in history where radicalization is a thing that happens all the damn time. And I think something that is important for people to keep in mind is uh, most people who have been radicalized to the point of willing to die for something believe that they are martyrs for their cause. Uh, And not all martyrs get to be Joan of Arc, who is, you know, if you take a long enough view of history, still weird in her own right. Uh, you know, she, uh, her, her, one of her deals was she wanted to go uh, kill a bunch of Czech uh, heretics uh, that, you know, that had their own kind of proto-Protestantism going on. So nobody's perfect. Uh, <laughs> but I think we should start with some really bad people uh, and documentaries about them. We'll be looking at the act of killing Oklahoma City, uh, white right uh, meeting the enemy. That's a colon title there. Anyway, uh, we'll, Probably uh, the Age of Rage or Alt Right Age of Rage is another one from recently. Uh, Fathers and Sons is one I just learned about uh, about Syria, uh, radicalization in Syria. So looking at uh, a whole bunch of times people were convinced they were on the right side of history, um, both uh, uh, from our modern era at. Uh, various ways of approaching their ideas. And now, again, I know we've covered uh, right in there. Uh, I've mentioned a lot of uh, white extremists, but again, I think uh, it's going to be interesting to try and untangle the web of, uh, of media and discourse around uh, extremists and radicalization and self-perceived martyrdom. Uh, I think then we're going to have to kind of circle back and look at martyrdom in a much more, grand, uh, big, and historical way. We'll be looking at The Passion of Joan of Arc. Uh, we'll be looking at Hunger, uh, the uh, Steve McQueen film uh, about the uh, the hunger strike, uh, the, the prisoner's hunger, the political prisoner's hunger striking during the Troubles. Uh, we'll be looking at Martyrs, another French film, because uh, I think, boy, howdy, uh, I, I, I guess we got to talk about Martyrs and The Passion of Joan of Arc together. 
uh, and look at the ways in which uh, martyrdom is often chosen for people. It is not as, you know, with radicalization, you're talking about something a little bit different, right? Somebody willing to uh, die uh, to carry out an act for a cause. Um, with with martyrs and with Joan of Arc, where, again, with Joan of Arc, you're talking about somebody that was willing to fight and die for a cause, but because of the nature of her execution, the nature of uh the history around it, it becomes something different. And then the film Martyrs, obviously a horror film, but is very much a horror film about, uh, you know, certain people decide who's going to be a martyr sometimes, and they make that choice for them. And uh, Arthur, I am also interested in the career of Mel Gibson, but uh, I'm not going to make anybody watch uh, The Passion of the Christ. So I decided it would be fun to talk about Braveheart. Um, but really, so we could talk about The Passion of the Christ without actually having to watch it. Because uh, I got I got feelings about that movie. We don't have time to get into. Uh, and we might also look at a little bit at the Chuck Palahniuk novel Survivor, which uh, will probably never be made into a film because it is about hijacking an aircraft. Uh, and it came out before uh, 2001, obviously. Uh, but uh, a very interesting film uh, about the last survivor of a death cult uh, and the media obsession with this character and, and what that does to somebody who has, you know, lived their life in a, a quiet piety uh, a fearful piety, but a piety nonetheless, uh, a quiet life of, of self-denial and what happens when a person like that gets sucked into a uh, 21st century media cycle. Uh, I, I think then we will go meet uh, our modern day radical documentaries uh, and our, our historical martyrs and conversations about martyrdom. We'll meet in the middle and look at uh, the civil rights movement in the United States. Uh, we'll look at uh, the Good Lord Bird a little bit, the uh, John Brown uh, miniseries uh, with, that Ethan Hawke spearheaded for uh, Showtime last year. Uh, we'll look at Selma. We'll look at Spike Lee's Malcolm X. Uh, we'll look at the forthcoming Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, and we'll look at Time, the documentary from this past year uh, about uh, Fox Rich uh, fighting for the release of her husband, Rob, uh, who's uh, serving a 60-year prison sentence. Uh, a movie I have not seen, but I've heard a lot of good things about. Obviously, some movies there I haven't seen uh, because uh, Judas and the Black Messiah is not available for the masses yet. But again, I, I think there's a lot to unpack when we're trying to deal with the idea of martyrdom and the way uh, the media r responds to it. But I think if Joan of Arc, the passion of Joan of Arc teaches us anything, both as a film and as a, a film that is a, a telling of real events, uh, history and media are uh, the deciding factor a lot of the time in what we choose to remember about an event. Uh, and I think... Uh, Hopefully, a class like this would allow us to uh, attack, or not attack, uh, disseminate uh, this subject from a lot of different angles and hopefully try and, you know, come at something approaching a conclusion. Uh, or at the very least, if no conclusion can be reached, uh, a conversation will have been had on the way there. Very good. Very good. Thank you very much for that, Dalton. I think if I was going to teach Joan of Arc, uh, there's a number of ways of which I could approach it, and uh, both the ways that both you and Arthur mentioned would be things I'd be interested in and, and ways I might think about doing it. But my first impression is to do it in terms of style, to do it in some part of like a, a classical film style, uh, or not classical, but just a film style, stylistic uh, formalism kind of course, and to do it in terms of the close-up. And so I would begin with The Passion of Joan of Arc and uh, talk about that, uh, have some reading, uh, a French Impressionist style, talk about the photogenie, uh, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit, which I don't even understand that term. I'm going to read a definition of it later 
and uh, we'll talk about it when we get down to actual business there. But I'm not quite sure what this thing even is, and it's one of those sort of like weird uh, classical film theory terms that uh, nobody really messes with much anymore. But more on that anon. Uh, and then um, from there, I think I'd flash forward uh, into the, the 90s, the 80s and the 90s, and uh, look at Jonathan Demme's um, Songs of the Lambs, uh, which is a movie also, I think, making use of this idea of the photogenie, but also just its extreme use of close-ups is what's clear here and uh, really kind of important in the way. And Demme's overall style. You know, it's funny about Dreyer. Dreyer uses the close-up all the time in this particular film. But you look at Vampire and some of his other work, and it's not the one thing that he uh, gives himself over to. But Demi, Jonathan Demi, uh, all the time, the Manchurian Candidate, uh, various of his films, uh, the close-up is a really important kind of touchstone for his st- his own personal touristic style, uh, which, again, is sort of tied up in that idea of photogenie. And so uh, that, I think, is interesting there as well. Uh, finally, uh, I'm going to name drop, and I've mentioned this movie before uh, years ago. Um, I saw it at Dead Center in 2014, uh, at, or 2013 maybe, uh, but it's a movie called Worm, starred uh, in and directed by a, a young man called Andrew Bowser, a Guthrie, Oklahoma filmmaker, and it is this kind of hillbilly redneck gangster movie. Uh, and uh, it is all shot in a uh, close-up of uh, Bowser's face uh, for the entire 80-some-odd minutes of the film uh, on a GoPro camera. And uh, as he is, and and again, rather than, uh, so it's a single-take film and a facial close-up film, uh, again, in this sort of genre of the uh, uh, action-slash-gang crime film, uh, as Worm is just trying to get away from people that are trying to kill him because he owes people drug money. And uh, it's a fascinating little movie, and uh, it's a movie that has stuck with me for years, uh, having seen it. And again, as I brought it up a handful of times on this show. Uh, but Andrew Bowser, if you listen to the show, uh, cool. Uh, would love to talk to you. I would love to do like a little interview or something uh, with you where you're at and uh, just your experience uh, with trying to break into the film industry. Because uh, it's a great little movie there, and that's uh, something I keep thinking about. But the use of the face as a form of acting, I think a a sort of a formal quote would be uh, there's a a story, an anecdote told about Jonathan, John Ford, uh, as he is known for his big landscapes uh, as a filmmaker. And one day he's shooting one of his Monument Valley Westerns and it's all rained out. They're all staying in. He goes, it's okay, it's okay. We're going to spend a day shooting the most interesting thing we can in all of cinema. And that's the human face. And uh, so I would use this little module just to uh, talk about the uh, aesthetics of the human face and narrative techniques of the human face and uh, various theories surrounding the close-up in cinema uh, and use those three films as my touchstones for that. So there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got a lot longer. And uh, without any further ado, I guess we'll move on into uh, getting down to business, yes? That's right, dear listener. <laughs> business is analysis. Um, can we uh, move that one little, sort of like dusty old piece of film theory out of the way um, as our first order of business before we get into all the really interesting thematic things? Uh, in Which here. one? Uh, mm. the, the, the photogenie. Uh, uh, Arthur, I'm sure you've run into the term before. Dalton, have you? No, 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 no. I got a degree in a real subject, so I've never heard about this before. Okay. I'm teasing. That was a very shitty thing to say. No, what, what does this mean? Okay, I don't. No one knows. Um, 
Let me read uh, okay. you something, okay? Gotcha. It's, so, is it kind of like uh, mise-en-scene where it, uh, it's really a context-heavy uh, turn of phrase <laughs> where it, it can mean anything? It is. It, it's very specifically connected to avant-gardism in mm-hmm. France and French impressionistic theory, okay? Okay. So let me read this definition, and then you tell me what you think. And I will try to make sure that I uh, – it's about a, uh, it's about five sentences long, so it's not very long. Um, but I will try to point out where there is ellipses, quotations, and parentheses because there are lots of them throughout. So, Oh, good lord. Here we go. Ready? This is an yeah, auditory method. Photogenie occurs at the meeting of the profilmic parentheses, what is in front of the camera, close parentheses, and the mechanical and the filmmaker. It is above all a defamiliarization of the spectator with what appears on screen. It is a property that cannot be found in quote reality unquote itself. A camera that is simply switched on does not record it, and a filmmaker cannot simply point it out. As Aitken summarizes, open quotation marks begin ellipsis. Fully realized photogenic can only be manifest when its latent power was employed to express the vision, the vision of the filmmaker. So the inherent poetry of the cinema could be harnessed and developed in a revelatory, a revelatory manner by the auteur, end quote. However, the narrative and of guard lacked a theory and philosophical base upon which these notions rest. And thus the concept of photogenic is always at the edge of an inexplicable mysticism that many critics cannot accept. Stop. Uh, well, uh, from one critic who cannot accept it, I'll say this is the kind of language uh, and the kind of thinking that has killed journalism. Uh, is what I'll say. Is it's this is this sounds far, far, far too egotistical and far, far, far too uh, intellectually masturbatory for its own good. I think what they're trying to get at is uh, what. I, I think uh, Werner Herzog is, uh, we quote it all the time, and Dustin, I know there's another filmmaker who has a similar turn of phrase to talk about this idea. This sounds like an aesthetic truth thing to me, right? Like it's talking about how in the process of capturing a thing on, on a fixed image, you've done something. And because there is a uh, artistic endeavor taking place, whether it's narrative or non-narrative uh, or uh, fiction or non-fiction, the, the capturing of the image with an intent to do art has done something, right? Is, am, am I, is that kind of what they're saying? That's I think what so. I'm getting. I, I think there, there, yeah, there is a new third thing that is being formed that is somewhere between the actual actor or actress, the mm-hmm. mechanical process of mm-hmm. photographic mm-hmm. capture and uh, the, you know, sort of uh, the, the made up make believe world that's being performed. And that, other thing that that tertiary mystical thing is the photogenic the experience of this something and someone that is other than just the human being seen on screen see it's yeah but it's crap like this that uh, let people think that uh, doing surrealist cinema was going to bring about uh, the glorious workers uh, revolution you know I, it's just it's too up its own butt for its own good which makes any good point being made less interesting honestly right but like I, once I, I you think though however it does get to something useful which is that sort of transcendentalism that schrader describes using this film as an example is that yeah. the use of close-ups here in this film the character falconetti transcends herself transcends the character of joan of arc and the movie itself becomes a mystical experience that there is some, you know, there's Joan of Arc, the historical figure, there's Falconetti, the actress, and the filmic process and the intentions of the drawer, and something else happens when we watch this movie. 
Okay, okay. And I can I, get behind that. I like to get it, behind to, that too, and that's photogenic, I think. I, I, to the extent that we're, what we're saying is the group bright like the the existence of a film that is watched by you know millions of people across decades and generations about a story 600 years ago is there's something magical going on i i guess i just mean to say that this it, is just too navel gazy for its own good like there there are more succinct less obtuse ways to talk about this idea and, and it is an inability to be succinct and not the obtuse that I think it creates filmed media. And again, whether we're talking about uh, narrative storytelling or we're talking about journalism and documentary storytelling, this sort of navel gazing get, gets things lost and it, it allows the conversation to be about the people making stuff instead of the, the, the stories being told. I, I which is why I think you know it's good. Uh, as I get more in- interested in documentary filmmaking, I'm trying to remind myself uh, to, to read uh, really cri- critical reviews of a lot of documentaries and stuff, just to think harder about uh, the process by by which a story is invented uh, out of real people's lives. Does that make sense? Am, yeah. am I um, okay? I just want to make sure I've, you guys haven't lost a thread or. By right. rather which I mean, I had lost the thread and lost you guys. What I was saying, uh, I just thought I wanted to name drop this one little yeah, term of I, classical film theory that oftentimes gets deployed yeah. in a particular case this film, and simply say it is uh, impenetrable and opaque. Uh, yeah, but I, I, I think there's there's a thing there. Well, I, I think don't maybe really we can understand it, but it's there. And I think we can circle back to this because I think you're right. I think there is a thing there, and I think it's interesting. And I think maybe when we actually we talk about other aspects of this film, we might be able to bring it back up. Yeah. Formal. One other formal thing. Uh, do we want to get into the frame rate stuff at all? Because I think it's interesting. I found it really interesting. The more I was learning about it, I don't we, have anything to, to comment on it, but I'm I'm happy to hear your words. Yeah, I, I have nothing uh, to say. Okay, well, so this is maybe uh, super basic for anybody who knows stuff about this, but uh, this was a little new to me. So uh, for anybody listening that doesn't know about this, Arthur and Dustin, I think you might know some. So when we're in the 20s, we're making movies, uh, the 1920s, we're we're hand cranking the, the camera, right? There is no mechanical way to keep the shutter open. So you're, you know, you are of course picturing the thing that people do when they play charades. Uh, and because of that, there's a variable frame rate, you know, cinematographers at the time or camera operators at the time, of course, like the, the bragging right is, Oh, I got the steady hand. Like that, that was your calling card. If, if you were a camera op was how steadily you could, uh, keep the how steady you could keep the frame rate uh but because of this this like variance in production uh when films are being shown they're being shown at like totally different speeds like distributors are making the same kind of or not uh distributors exhibitors uh you know theater owners are making doing the same kind of thing calculus that goes on today right how many showings can i get in my theater per day uh, or at the very least they were doing that up until uh, we stopped going to the movies uh, but uh, for this film for instance it was a film that people would run at 24 frames a second to get shorter uh, as opposed to uh, uh, oh gosh uh, 20 frames a second which is probably closer to what it was meant to be shown at there is a, a lot of debate 
uh, around whether or not Dreyer cared if this was a 20 frames a second or 24 frames a second movie. Uh, but it definitely wasn't a 16 frames a second movie. And that is where things get interesting, because a lot of films from this era um, are going to vary anywhere between 16 to 20 frames a second. And in their modern reproductions or uh, modern restorations, they're almost always bumped up to 24 frames a second, which is why, you know, if you, you're watching an older film or watching a clip from an older film, uh, there is kind of a, a weird herky jerkiness to the motion. Part of that is, uh, you know, again, that, that variable frame rate, you know, ranging anywhere from 16 to 20 frames uh, at the actual what's being shot and then what's being pro projected is, you know, 20 or 24. Uh, that has a lot to do with that herky-jerky motion you're getting. Uh, but part of that, I, one of the production concerns at the, that time, which I think is really interesting, is uh, exhibitors going ahead and saying, well, look, the, the audiences like it when things are fast and cool anyway. So even if there was like a note from the studio or the filmmaker saying this is how fast you should sh show the film, they'd bump it up anyway because the audience likes it when things move fast and they can get more butts and seats and, you know, they can – shorten movies down by uh, as much as, you know, 20 to 30 minutes, depending on what its actual frame rate was. Uh, I know that was super technical. I uh, hope it was comprehensive or comprehensible. Uh, it's, you know, there's a lot about this that I uh, just learned about and a lot that I still don't understand. But I thought, uh, you know, what little I picked up today learning about uh, uh, the passion of Joan of Arc's history, uh, production and distribution history, uh, and by extension, you know, other silent films from this era. I thought that stuff was really interesting because, again, this era has a very specific look, right? Even if uh, you're not uh, particularly well-versed or well-read on this this part of film history, I think everybody is kind of aware of, of the look of movement in silent films uh, and, and learning a little bit more about how that, that all shook out. I, I thought it was very interesting. Um, I, I guess the only thing worth mentioning, the, a big reason that... Uh, films get restored to 24 frames a second and uh, uh, a big part of why silent films don't have any uh, of their original music. Uh, oh, nope. Sorry, I didn't take good enough notes on this. My bad, listener. I thought I had something to say. I don't. <laughs> Fair enough. Right. Arthur, I believe you do have something to say. Go ahead, buddy. Well, I, I think it is just interesting to think about um, the difference of experience. You know, I, I maybe one of these days I'll get to sit down and watch the, the 20 frames per second cut that's on Criterion. Uh, because I do wonder about how the experience might differ. You know, I feel like the 80 minutes is a good time to be able to sit with these characters, uh, to be able to feel uh, in in the shoes of Joan and, and to feel that empathy for her. Uh, but I wonder, you know, slowing it down just a little bit, if it, it doesn't deepen that impact, maybe. Uh, mm. You know, I think it's just an interesting thought process. And I also wonder... You know, the, the ending of this film, uh, when, you know, the English or whatever raid the town or whatever they're doing, um, it feels pretty hyperkinetic. And, and I wonder if slowing that down doesn't work out a little uh, smoother to kind of clean that up some. Uh, yeah, I did. I did watch a couple of clips of uh, the 20 frames a second version, uh, Arthur. And yeah, there is a lot. There, there is a smoothness to the motion because, uh, again, I don't know who listening doesn't know this, but yeah, they, they had to have actors move at speci in specific ways and at specific speeds because of uh, the way frame rates worked back yeah. then. Yeah, I, I think it's, you know, I, I would also like to see the 60 frames per second cut of this uh, alongside Gemini Man. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which would be really wild. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, you know, it's obviously that's something we don't think about really anymore, the frame rate and how that impacts stuff. And when we do, it is something like Gemini Man where they're trying to 
increase it so it, it makes it more realistic, you know, like you're looking out the window. Uh, and it's really interesting how that can impact you in this kind of uncanny valley. Uh, whereas I wonder, uh, you know, with a, a movie such as this, where it is all about the experience of letting this wash over you, you know, kind of slowing that down, if it, if it does kind of deepen that connection and and that empathy for, for Joan. So it's a fascinating, I think, thought experiment to kind of sit down and, and look at those two in pretty close time timeline, you know, watch it one day, watch it the next day or later the same day because it's not very long. Uh, just to see what it does in, in that regard. For sure, for sure. Um, do we have any other thoughts on the formal process before we sort of get into some textual criticism of the film? Uh, only to say that I think... Or analysis, uh, not criticism. Sorry. Oh, I, I think we knew what you meant, but good, good to be specific with the language. Uh, I, I think your, your hoity-toity word you brought to us at the top of uh, this section, Dustin, uh, I think uh, I think does tie back into this frame rate stuff, though, because I, I think... What what Arthur's getting at just now is is a big part of, of what feels mystical, I guess, about filmmaking. Right? Uh, is the the dreamy way in which it looks because it does uh, move fast slower uh, than the human eye actually sees motion. Right? Like th- that twenty four frames a second. Uh, you, you don't really think too much about it uh, unless one you're a dork or two uh, you put it right up side by side against something that's not 24 frames a second and you realize oh that's right movies and tv look totally different than real life uh and i don't know I, that's just very interesting uh to think about when we, when we do consider that what it is what is it about film that uh you know perplexes us and mystifies us so and and i think uh, the, these frame rate considerations do give that kind of weird unearthliness the dream dreaminess uh to all all movies regardless of how surreal or how realistic they are I, there is a certain kind of uh sp- spookiness you could say uh, and i think that gets uh, what we were trying to touch on earlier dustin Right, What's for the, sure. Say the term, say the fancy term again. Photogenie, like genie. The photogenie, the photogenie. Well, yeah. I will be saying the photogenie, of course. Uh, but yeah, I, I I thought it was nice to circle back to that because of the frame rate conversation. But yeah, uh, Dustin, do you do you have anywhere you really want to start uh, as far as uh, the the analyzing of the text itself? Yeah, I mean, when we start thinking about the movie uh, as a whole, now let's start. You know, it is this trial movie, and it is this movie about. Uh, Joan of Arc standing up uh, uh, for a heresy trial, which is interesting, right? And I, th- this is historically accurate stuff here. So Joan of Arc is leading a rebellion against English uh, uh, occupation of France, right? Mm-hmm. And so she has got up and, you know, developed an army. And, of course, if you're riding horses and, you know, throwing spears, you need to wear pants, uh, just it's necessary to, in order to sort of get that kind of work done. And so she's dressing like a dude and doing all this other stuff. But uh, then these uh, set of uh, cardinals and priests and whatnot that are putting her on trial are putting her on trial again for heresy, but they're loyal to the English. They're, they're collaborators is what they are. Correct. And that's that's super important to keep in mind. Yeah, is like everybody that is in this part of France at this time is there because uh, England, uh, when I say everybody that's there, I mean, all the church officials that are there uh, are in their positions because they have backing from the English crown, uh, even though they are in what would be considered French territory. So, uh, you know, the British collaborators and they try Joan for heresy. And the whole thing is built on there's a, there's no Bible term, 
uh, on shibboleths. Uh, and there's a great episode of the West Wing that talks about this as well. But a shibboleth is basically you got to say the password, right? You got to say the right code word in order to uh, prove that you're one of the right people on the right side of things. And so a uh, shibboleth is a word that because of a certain person, group of people's accent, they couldn't make the SH sound. And they say stibboleth instead of shibboleth or sibboleth, I guess, instead of shibboleth. And so uh, because of just their their way of pronouncing words, you could know who the people who belong there and people who didn't belong there were. And that's really what they're trying to do. And the whole time I'm watching this movie, I'm thinking about the idea of shibboleth and I'm thinking about a documentary film or a series of documentary films, uh, the paradise lost films uh, about the West Memphis three. It's funny. You bring them up, Dustin. Uh, they almost, uh, I, I thought about trying to get a West Memphis three doc into my class. So I'm glad you're bringing, uh, bringing these fellows up. Because, yeah, in that movie and in that trial uh, that it is, uh, again, recording and representing uh, in the documentary mode, the, the problem with these guys is they're not playing by the rules. They're not giving themselves over to just the standard sort of ways of understanding the world, living life in the world uh, that everyone else does. And they want to find and get somebody for this terrible crime, these Robin Hood murders of uh, these young boys. And... As I'm watching The Passion of Joan of Arc, it is because of her ignorance of the system and because of the political uh, sort of situation as it is. Since she doesn't know the rules, she's playing a game, basically, with life or death consequences with this group of people that she doesn't really understand. Yeah, one of my favorite – oh, go ahead. ahead. Sorry. Well, And and they're just tricking her into her own either confession, which leads to life in prison, or rescinding of that confession to be found guilty anyway and execution. And it's because she doesn't know how to play the game right, and they're using her ignorance to use their power to put her away because she is of a group of people that are politically inconvenient in the case of – like in Paradise Lost, they're politically inconvenient because they're metalheads in Arkansas, politically inconvenient in the 90s, or uh, politically inconvenient uh, insurrectionists, or rather loyalists, nationalists in this case, uh, who want to defend France against English invaders. And so this is an easy way to put this person away. Go ahead, though, Dalton. Oh, it's just uh, I wanted to shout out a very early, early sequence of uh, a very early exchange in the film where they they put Joan in this both like theological and legal trap, right? Where they're at trying to get her to say whether or not she is certain of her grace, right? Because if she says yes, then she's a heretic because nobody can be certain of this. And if she says no, then she's admitting her guilt, right? And again, like as the the uh, prologue or preface to the film shows us or these the, you know the the uh, starting title cards like a lot of this is is adapted from uh the existing transcripts of the trial and and uh, dryer spent like a year i guess researching these documents as he was working on the film uh and her answer is just like well it sure would be tight if i do have god's grace and if i don't i sure would like it because i'll be real sad if i don't and it's hard to say if joe of arc is just an absolute brilliant verbal tactician or if it is just this is just a humble little farm person who uh is just like well man that's how i feel and just say being honest about how she feels in this uh room where literally nobody is being honest uh that traps them and befuddles and confuses them it's a great moment and again apparently one from the historical record that is quite accurate uh and of course we can never know again whether or not you know this is joan being uh 
uh, clever and, and outwitting them or just Joan speaking her truth. And it is a truth that is uh, legally and theologically neutral. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know that she is ignorant of the situation at all. I, I think I was going to bring up the same point Dalton brought up uh, because it's, you know, it's eerily, you know, uh, reminiscent and echoes many of the questions they asked Jesus, right? Uh, but to pull it from those same transcripts is, is the interesting part of this. Um, but, you know, Joan wasn't new to what, I mean, she had been in these armies, she'd been in the war, she'd been around the, the king or the prince or whatever, Charles. Uh, so I think she was very aware of the situation she was in and around. Uh, she was devoted mm. to the Catholic Church, right? She wasn't, I don't think she wasn't, you know, she may not be able to read, but I don't think she was ignorant of of the, the scope of her situation. That's a very good point. Yeah, Arthur makes, uh, because yeah, I think it's like three years or so she spends at court. I think it's like 16 is when she like goes to the, the local uh, let's just go ahead and say the, the local recruiter and says, you got to take me to the King of France. So she's like doing war for like, what, two and a half, three years yeah. uh, based on the historical records. So this, in, is, this is a good point. I mean, she's in prison for what, 18 months? I mean, the, 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 this movie plays out over a day or something. But I mean, she was this this whole situation took place over like 18 months or two years. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so it is a very short time that she's at work doing her work, but she has definitely made some waves in it. And then she does seem to be pretty savvy. I guess the point that I was trying to draw our attention to is that this had nothing to do with theology. No, oh, of course not. No. Yeah. no, God. Well, and that was why I mentioned that, yeah, these these French clergy are being backed by the English crown. And, and it, it will, you know, when you look at the historical record, because there is a surprisingly probably because it was a trial carried out by the Catholic Church, that there, there is a, a pretty large amount of legal documentation about what went on at this trial. And basically, it, it is easy to see in the historical record that everybody knew that there was nothing legal. There was nothing theological. There, there was a mandate to embarrass a powerful uh, person in the French military. Uh, yeah. it, it was all about the politics of the war that was going on and trying to keep the Burgundy regions of France uh, loyal to English control. Yeah, and, right. And you know the the idea of you know there were people who knew and wanted to object, but their their lives were threatened. Right, uh, which yeah. is a really interesting dichotomy where you know Jones willing to die, but they're not. You know, and so the 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 truth and and the. The, the players involved in the truth is, is a really interesting part of the, the historical narrative. Well, I want to get more to the diagnostic of what is at stake here in this film, because I, I want to suggest as an initial thesis is that religious atrocities hardly ever have anything to do with religion. No, again, I, I made the, the joke earlier about Di Dwyer, not Dwyer, Dreyer being, uh, making a film that certainly seems to be chastising anybody that would call themselves a Christian and oversee an execution, right? right. Like it, it does seem to be a film that is about religious hypocrisy, uh, and also seems to be about, you know, gender centric control, right? Right. Uh, if you go to the historical record again, uh, you can see that they couldn't try Joan of Arc, uh, to, couldn't put her to death for heresy because you could only do that if, uh, you know, there was like repeat offenses. So they, uh, the repeat offense they went to was cross-dressing. Yeah. Uh, but if you go to the, like, there was an appellate trial after her execution. Uh, and basically everybody was like, oh yeah, she put her dude clothes back on because she knew that was a good way to prevent herself from being assaulted. Mm -hmm. Cause she'd, you know, been at war for three years and had been on the road for, you know, when she first started traveling outside of her, you know, farm village or whatever, the, uh, the soldiers she was traveling with, we're like, oh, you need to take these dudes' clothes because, like, that's just how you 
travel. If you're if you're going to be traveling on the road with us, that's you're going to be riding horses and throwing spears. You need to wear some pants. Yeah. Well, because pants and battle garb have fasteners and buckles and things that cannot be quickly, uh, you know, molested. Also, uh, and I don't yeah. mean that. Yeah, yeah they, and- exactly. They're. There, it's a, just a protection device for being in the world if you're Joan of Arc yeah. at that time. And, and also from uh, the bigger picture of being protected and being able to blend in in, in a correct. group of soldiers. But even, uh, again, to get back to, to what I, I learned about the historical record, I guess at some point when the, she was like, all right, fine, I'll wear girl clothes or whatever if that'll like, you know, make this trial uh, work out in my favor. Uh, apparently, she, she's told the the guards or whatever that a church official came and tried to uh, uh have, have his way uh almost immediately uh and then the guards took her dress to make fun of her so that was why she put her boys clothes back on like yeah. they, there was just this whole like historical record of uh abuse and uh malfeasance going on that was just basically ignored until they got her executed and then within a couple of years uh because uh, you know I, hard to say what the uh, shifting po- politics, probably. Uh, oh, but, the English yeah. got whooped and they left. Uh, well, there you have it. Yeah. So again, the the French uh, parts of the Catholic Church, like almost immediately, start uh, going back to the trial to see like what actually happened and to try and exonerate her po- posthumously. I think going back to Dustin's original thesis, you know, where they posits about what this film is about. You know, I think we also have to get in the idea of the separation of church and state. Right when when the religious totally. and then the government work together, it's a, a well, that's an American thing. idea, not a French one. I mean, we want to be clear there. Well, yeah, but I think it and, foreshadows it. Yeah, and, for sure. Yeah. But I, I think what's really important here is that this movie, I think, makes it clear that this is about controlling her body, yep. controlling the way she dresses, and their pursuit of political power, and that she is in the way for their political power, and they'll use religion and theological things, but they don't care about any of that stuff at all. And I think that's the fundamental hypocrisy here. And so when you start talking about conversations about the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition or the Salem Witch Trials or, uh, you know, slaveholder religion and Jim Crow in the American South, those particular atrocities have really very little to do with looking at a, a source text or an ancient tradition of spiritual experiences and trying to figure out how to be human in the world. And it comes to a group of people who are in power who want to use a text like that because a number of people um, are, uh, you know, nominally or even fervently uh, believers in following that organized particular path of religion, using that as a means of control, which is not the same thing as the practice yeah. of any given religion. And uh, and it seems to me that the movie seems to be a strong exposure of that. About how, well, how the movie doesn't care about theology at all. These or these people don't care about theology at all. They just want to stop this woman. And, it, it is the most important part of the story, right? It's important that Dreyer is tackling this, and I, I think you're absolutely right, Dustin. It does seem to be the film's point of view is that uh, this is not good. That uh, this theocracy is uh, is a institution of lies and misdeeds and uh look i'll say it i defy you to find me a more historically evil organization than than the medieval catholic church uh even the inquisitors who were like interviewed about the trial of joan of arc were like yeah this was a a bad trial even by our piss poor standards right uh like that's how bad this trial was uh and again i i didn't really know a whole lot about it until doing research for the show but it is it's just wild how much documentation of what went down there is from this thing that happened 600 years ago. For sure. For sure. So I, again, that, that, that's where I was kind of getting to is like, this is about a woman 
This is about her doing man stuff. This is about, again, English power and uh, trying to, you know, kowtow, that kind of stuff. And has really nothing to do with whether or not this woman hears from God or not. Or no, you know, I, speaking of God at all, you know. Not at all. Well, and I think that's the problem with, uh, as Arthur said, again, this idea of separating church and state is an American idea, but it is one that, you know, a, a secular French society is an idea that gets taken up by the French people in a, you know, and it's a uh, something they take very seriously and have, you know, had civil rights issues uh, stemming from that, uh, taking that a little too seriously. But the the point being, like, you, I don't, I don't think you can find a theocracy that isn't uh, a, a farce or right. a, just an outright lie, because government in and of itself is about control, uh, and systems of faith and belief when they're at their best are uh, about personal relationships uh, with uh, you know somebody and uh, their, their uh, experience of the divine. Right? You, you are always trying to put a label on something that's not supposed to be labeled per se uh, and that might not be the most succinct way to say it but uh yeah if, theocracy is not good man because right. well, it takes I mean, two institutions I, that have counter purposes as another writer puts it you know when the spirituality is at its best it springs it helps people jump and try to reach higher and higher when it's at its worst it's bricks and it builds walls and divides and and closes people and this is a case in which theocracy acts like bricks right Sure, and you're right. I probably shouldn't be uh, painting with so broad a brush because there's been a lot of uh, theocracies historically and uh, presently, but uh, just seems like a bad idea uh, yeah. overall. Uh, it does not seem like a f fertile ground for discourse uh, if you're trying to figure out how to organize a society. For sure, for sure. Uh, okay, well, that was – I mean that's the biggie on the eye chart thing, right, because it's a heresy trial. Do we have other uh, big thematic textual things that we want to tackle with Joan of uh, Arc? I'm good. Uh, I, I think it's just important to uh, remember like Joan's place as a, uh, I don't know if this is literally one of her, her sainthoods or I forget, I don't know what the language they uses, but uh, she certainly is the patron saint of the wrongfully accused. Uh, right. And I think, again, we, we've kind of been talking about that already, but I, just to, you know, the, the, the reason a person is uh, imprisoned is not always a religious one, uh, but the, there is almost always a... Uh, a moral idea or a moral judgment being uh, passed on somebody when they are uh, incarcerated, uh, re regardless of what the rules say. That the, there is a, at the end, at the end of it all, there is a, a moral judgment being passed by a society that says, "Well, this person is not fit for uh, being in public uh, for whatever reason." And, and I think you can find a lot of people who probably shouldn't be uh, warehoused uh, that are currently being held. Uh, and I, I think Joan is an important figure, not just for her, her piety, I guess, not just for her, her firm conviction and her beliefs. Uh, because again, at the end of the day, we, we can't know if uh, Joan ha was, was communing with the divine or was an unwell person. That doesn't really matter uh, at all, frankly, uh, because it, you know, if God is literally talking to people, it is, probably people who society would deem unwell. But uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm fascinated by Joan as a character, and that might have a lot to do with Falconetti's, again, lights out just I'm, decades ahead of its time performance it, that is really just transfixing and, and capture, captivating. But uh, the more I think on Joan of Arc as a historical figure, even after learning, you know, some complications about the myth, how, how could you not want to kind of... Uh, you know, build up well. I mean, look, the church ended up canonizing her, and I think it makes sense that they did because this is a important figure in not just French history, not just Catholic history, but I would say all of human history when we are talking about the 
humanity's continued insistence on locking each other up for one reason or another. I, I think a figure like Joan of Arc is extremely important to look to uh, uh, for uh, you know ways to inspire us to build more benevolent uh, societies, I guess. For sure. I totally agree with that. And uh, with that, I guess let's go to uh, our final portion of the show and render a verdict on uh, The Passion of Joan of Arc. I go to you first, Arthur. What do you say? Shelf or trash with this uh, Carl Theodore Dreyer classic? Uh, Easy shelf. (laughs) Okay, yeah. (laughs) For sure. For sure. What do you say, Dalton? Uh, This is going to be a second easy shelf. Yep. Yeah. All right. And I say the same thing. It's definitely a shelfable film. I mean, and and, and, and unlike, you know, say the rules of the game, which is a movie I have on my shelf, it's a movie that I've returned to uh, for required purposes, but I've returned to for fun at least once. And uh, it's just it's 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 a great movie. I like it a lot. So there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts uh, on the passion of Joan of Arc. Um, Dalton, say the words about the social media and other things, please. Uh, yeah, if you want to make a case for why theocracy is actually a totally good and normal form of government, uh, you Call can somebody uh, else. send that email to goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com, and uh, we'll do with it what we will. Uh, if you want to follow this show and this uh, podcast network, you can go on to Twitter at good underscore trash. I can't imagine why you would get on Twitter if you're not already, but if you're already there, at good underscore trash for everything uh, good trash media. Uh, we're tweeting out all the links to all the things that are being recorded Uh, by us and by our friends. Uh, It's a whole heck of a lot of fun. Uh, Check out this show, the Good Trash Genre Cast. Uh, Check out Twilight, which is currently in this very same feed, uh, but will soon have its own home. Uh, That's a show where our friends Kirsten and Aaron uh, yell at each other about Twilight, and uh, everybody learns a whole lot about uh, art and literature and each other. Uh, Check out The Praise Down with Heath and Alex. Want to think about uh, how our contemporary society is uh, still wrestling with the the fallout of uh, all of the Western world being a theocracy for a really long time? Check out The Praise Down with Heath and Alex. It's about uh, Christian culture and other things. Uh, They just recorded their 100th episode. Congratulations, fellas. Big round of applause uh, from us to you. That's good stuff. Uh, that's The Praise Down with Heath and Alex. Uh, you can find that show and, again, the show uh, Twilight and, of course, The Wheel of Randy, another good trash media show. All of those at good underscore trash. We'll be tweeting out the links and other movie reviews uh, and news. Not all stuff that we're writing, of course, just things that we find interesting. Uh, if you go to at The Praise Down uh, on Twitter, uh, they've got their own uh, account over there. You can also see uh, an invite to their Discord server, which is just a nice nice place to hang out, watch movies and play games and, and talk to people who will uh, keep you company in these weird, weird uh, days that we uh, have both behind and in front of us. That's at the praise down their pinned tweet uh, that invite to their discord server. Last but not least, if you go to patreon.com forward slash GTM, you can, uh, well, you can do all kinds of stuff, uh, primarily uh, give us money. Uh, but uh, <laughs> when you do that, uh, when you do that, you get to, I don't know, Maybe pick a movie for us to talk about on the show, or we could send you a movie if that's something you're into. Uh, And you can listen to Dustin and Arthur and I play uh, Monster of the Week, which is a tabletop game uh, that's a lot of fun. And look, if you have a podcast, you have to have an actual play podcast. That's in the contract that you sign when you start a podcast. Uh, I don't make the rules. It's just a contract for podcasting shows up in my in your mailbox. And one of the articles, uh, the, the one of the uh, addendums is you have to start an actual play podcast. I don't, I don't know. Arthur, you, do you have any expertise on this matter? What? 
<laughs> I was just trying to fold you into a very stupid bit that I was doing. Uh, that's all the social media stuff, I think. Uh, but now it is time for Arthur to talk again because he's got to tell us what we're watching. Do I? Yes, please do that. Is that a thing I have to do? Did either of well, you figure I mean, it out? I'm just curious. I, I did. I mean, I so Arthur, Arthur told us that if we wanted to figure out what the last movie we would be doing uh, for our, our little French anti-trash marathon, he told us that if we looked at the poster for The Passion of Joan of Arc, we could uh, maybe piece it together. And uh, I got nothing. Me neither. All right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna sail this thing down the sand next week. We're gonna we're gonna wrap up Anti Trash 2021, and we're gonna jump into the modern era uh, as we talk about Portrait de la Jeune Fille en Feu, or oh, yes. the Portrait of a Lady on Fire by Céline Sciamma. Yes, I'm punching the air. Yes. Oh hell yeah, dude! Been uh, putting off watching this movie for too long. So excited to finally have uh, a reason to watch it. Other it than, is so uh, stinking good. Oh, man. Uh, All right. I'm so our, excited. Our, our second Celine Sciamma film uh, that we've done for the show. Uh, very excited. So there you go, dear listener. You keep watching. We'll keep talking in French. And we'll see you all next time.